At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello everyone and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, Joe Neal and Hannah Thurger. And today we have a very special guest, an absolute expert in harm reduction for people with substance misuse issues. So we have Danny Ahmed here today, folks, and he is a registered mental health nurse and an integrative psychotherapist. He's worked in the substance use field for over 20 years, so he's a proper expert, and he's a staunch harm reductionist. He's currently a clinical partner at Foundations, which is a specialist GP practice, and he's a clinical director for Cranston, which is a social justice charity. So this follows on from him leading England's first diamorphine-assisted treatment program in Middlesbrough, which we will be talking about, DAT, diamorphine-assisted treatment. And something you may not be so aware of, he's also one of the experts on the Drug Science Enhanced Harm Reduction Working Group, chaired by Professor Alex Stevens. So a very warm welcome to you, Danny. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's an absolute oh. privilege to be asked to guest. I feel really honoured, so thank you for that. Oh, Danny, we're honoured to have you. And actually, Hannah and I are thrilled to be part of the podcast as well. That's a real honour. I thought we might start by talking about your early days, maybe, your career, how you came. How did you come to be working in this field? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I mean, I suppose, I mean, I trained as a mental health nurse. And as part of that training, I undertook a placement in the local drug and alcohol service at that point. And and fell in love with the work that they were doing straight away. You just I felt a kinship with the people who were using the services, and it really floated my boat. I, I actually, from that point on, never worked outside of the substance use field. From I uh, did my sort of end placements as a mental health nurse in that environment and, and went on to specialise straight away, which is unusual. You would expect that you would sort of spend some years, you know, the classic journey for a mental health nurse is to spend some years on an acute ward and tailor those in inpatient skills and then start to think about specialization but for me I knew this is the area I wanted to work in and I guess part of that calling for me was you know I'm a child of the rave generation so I've I've partied I've I've enjoyed substances and you know I, I really understand that people can use substances in a non-problematic way and yet we have a situation in this country where that is is denied people causes more risk than harm and that all kind of was part of the mix for me in wanting to be involved in in this field. That's great actually talking about placement same for me so as part of my degree I did a placement working in a lab and that kind of was it for me as well doing all the behavior and I just yeah I loved it and carried on doing that but it's great that that it's great to find that isn't it 
Absolutely, and you know, I think somebody's said to me before: if you if you're doing the thing you love, you don't really feel like you're working. And I really don't. I feel like every day I'm learning new things. I'm contributing in a way that satisfies me as an individual, and it doesn't feel like work. It feels like an absolute pleasure to be to be involved in in things like this. You know, yeah. And it's about the people that you're working with and the people that you meet in the course of your day. Absolutely. I mean, as a group of people, people who use drugs and and people who maybe use them problematically, to get to spend time with them, you know, a group that are often shunned really by the rest of society, to get to spend time with them and understand their lives, their histories, um, but also to just share a laugh, to have a joke, to talk about the mundane things in life. It feels it's probably been, it is the highlight of my career, being able to sort of have that contact with a group of people that, as we've said before, are so often misunderstood, um, vilified within our, our communities. Probably much more fun, Hannah, than working with a load of scientists and academics. <laughs> much more enlightening, probably. Could you explain what harm reduction is? I suspect some of our listeners don't really have a very good appreciation. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, you know, harm reduction is about reducing the harm of a particular behaviour so that, that it can be undertook as safely as possible. And that's the essence of harm reduction in whatever format it's you know, applied. I suppose the nearest and the most obvious example of harm reduction is some of the restrictions that we had in place over a pandemic. You know, these were ways we put masks on, we reduced the distance between each other, we started to wash our hands. So we didn't stop functioning as a society. We tried to reduce the harm associated with our interaction and the risk that that was that is associated with that. But it allowed us to continue as safely as possible. And that's exactly the same framework when applied to other areas and, and certainly within substance use for me it's about allowing people to have the right information to undertake an activity as safely as possible and reduce the risks wherever we can and that usually is about people being armed with the appropriate tools the appropriate equipment and the appropriate environments and, and equipment that they need to do that so in terms of substance use, what does that kind of look like? What are those tools and what are the sort of environments? So, I mean, it can be the sort of classic example is the, the issuing of injecting equipment to people who use drugs to reduce the risk of transmission of bloodborne disease and also to reduce sort of localised infections that, that could be present. But it's also more than that. It's the administration of advice about how to safely inject, so how to safely undertake a, an activity to minimise the harm. So if you inject the substance and your technique isn't great, then you're likely to damage your arms more than you would do if if you understood the technique better. In terms of you know the nighttime economy, if people are, are using MDMA, for example, it's about giving clear advice about how to have uh, how to have breaks, how to use water to sort of make sure that you are hydrated enough to sort of manage the use of other substances alongside that so that you don't put yourself at unnecessary risk. So for me, all the time, it's about knowledge and information so that people can undertake a task as safely as possible. And Danny, do you find there's more stigma associated with different types of harm reduction, whether that be harm reduction at a festival compared to harm reduction for people who might inject drugs? Yeah, I think there is. And I think, you know, the, the group of people who are most subject to that stigma are those with extreme problems with drugs like heroin and, and crack cocaine. There's a real 
vilification of that group of people within within society. There are a number of high production interventions uh, that have been subject to this podcast in the past, like overdose prevention centres that are currently deemed an illegal activity within within the UK, but have a very strong evidence base and would clearly help people who use those drugs problematically. You tend to see that, you know, within festival environments, there's, there's a, a much quicker uptake of harm reduction intervention. So we look at drug sampling, for example, that's really taken off in the sort of festival community. It's not my area of expertise, but you know, I can see that that's taken off in, in those settings far quicker than it has within you know, local drug services, for example, uh, people who are using, you know, contaminated supplies of, of street tablets or powders have not got the same access to those type of facilities. And it's, you know, quite a difficult process to be able to get, um, firstly, the funding and then the uh, navigate the sort of legalities of being able to implement that on a, on a widespread level for, for that group of people. Completely. So when thinking about harm reduction, it's harm reduction for all the different types of groups of people who use drugs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Education, advice. Yeah, all, all that. So think, just thinking about mental health and social inequality, we have a lot of that. I guess you've seen a lot of that over the years, Danny. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's a real correlation between, you know, problematic use of substances. And I think that that's very clearly has a strong relationship with with mental health problems for, for many people, not for all. And certainly for social areas of social deprivation, you see certainly higher levels of problematic drug use. You know, it's important to remember that, you know, 90% of people who use substances will have absolutely no problem whatsoever. They'll have a, you know, perfectly stable relationship with that substance. And that's great. But for others where there may well be histories of, you know, traumatic histories, basically, then there certainly seems to be a predisposition to developing a more problematic relationship with substances. And I think that's because the, you know, the substance, the substance provides a mask in some respects, a, a kind of numbing. I think that's probably a way to think about it, a numbing of the emotional pain. And that when, you know, you are emotional pain is, is a better place that, to be than, than completely struggling all the time. So the substance use, you know, provides that kind of protection and that's how some people feel about it is that you know actually the drugs i use allow me to function they may cause me some problems and that causes me some issues in how i function in other areas of my life but these are sometimes stabilizing for me and of course everybody listening to this must know people who use alcohol which of course is a drug a very harmful mm. drug as we know in that way and we kind of see that all the time don't we all around us Absolutely. Absolutely. The correlation and the statistics are exactly the same with alcohol. So 90% of people have a, a perfectly reasonable relationship with alcohol and 10% of people will, will struggle to manage it. And it will usually turn out that they've got some history of, uh, of trauma as well. So Danny, I know you've got a lot of experience with diamorphine assisted treatments. So can you tell us a little bit about that, how it works, what the sort of benefits are of that kind of approach to treatment? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of standard approach from a medicine's point of view when looking at a heroin addiction in particular is usually methadone or buprenorphine. And that's the sort of frontline standard medications that you would be issued. And for a number of people, they fail to benefit from those medications. So just like we all do with all areas of, of medicine, not all medicines are a panacea for all people. And it's certainly the case in opiate substitute treatment. So what happens in that group of people is that they access treatment, they're provided with a medicine that is not working optimally for them. So they fail to stabilize. So they fail to get the benefits that you would hope, which is that they're able to break that relationship with the drugs that they're using or stabilize that relationship with the drugs that they're using as a platform for then repairing their lives and leading their lives, sorry, in a, in a way that they choose to, which, you know, for most people, their aspirations are are not particularly grand, but very important. You know, I want stable housing. I'd like to have a job. I'd like to have, you know, connections within my life, a family and friend level. So people aren't asking for a lot when they come into treatment, but some medicines, as I say, fail to provide that benefit. Can you tell us what methadone and buprenorphine are and how they're taken? Yeah, so methadone is an oral medication primarily. It's an opioid agonist and it basically settles the symptoms of opiate withdrawal. Um, so if you take heroin, you take heroin up to four or five times a day because of its short acting window. Methadone is a longer acting medication. So you take one dose over a 24 hour period. Um, it will abate those, those symptoms if the dose is right. One of the challenges or, I suppose, scandals really within the UK is that we do have a culture of underdosing people with methadone. So we don't seem to reach those optimum doses. And there's a number of reasons for that. That can be um, reticence on behalf of the prescriber, but also sometimes some individuals um, worry about being on methadone for a long period of time and describe it as a, as being on sort of liquid handcuffs is the is the term that some people can use because they feel sort of trapped by the treatment process, really, that they're having to sort of daily ingest a medicine, having to go to a chemist where they're supervised and having sort of a number of things restricted. That's quite stigmatising, isn't it, having to go into the pharmacy every day and take it on site, I would have thought. Absolutely, and you can understand the barrier to, you know, to anybody who wants to access treatment and is starting to want to stabilise the lives, you know. What you can do is inadvertently create a new habitual routine. So people who use heroin have a kind of routine of sort of having to acquire the funds for the drug, consume the drug, you know, get the drug, then consume the drug and then acquire the funds for the drug and so on and so forth. And then what can happen with treatment is that people get into a sort of new pattern of that they have to be daily visitors to the chemist and that's part of their routine that becomes binding over however long for some people that can be you know years where they're in treatment. having said that methadone when it works well and when people have got the right parameters to their treatment it can absolutely stabilize somebody's life so that they can lead it in a more a more fulfilling way for them buprenorphine is a agonist and antagonist so again it will stop the opiate withdrawal symptoms but it also has a blockade effect at the right dose so if people choose to use opiates or struggling and and you know find themselves lapsing um the opiate will have a reduced effect or no effect at all due to that um, blockade effect 
some people find buprenorphine a it's a different medication so you're more clear-headed with buprenorphine than you are with methadone and there are advantages or disadvantages to that based on the individual some people prefer to have a clearer head other people prefer to have a little bit of fuzz because that's what they're kind of used to and part of the attraction to opiates and the stuff that they've been going through historically so the real nuance it's exciting that we've got other injectable forms of, of medications coming online like buvidal which is an injectable form of of buprenorphine that's a medicine that acts in exactly the same way as I've described for buprenorphine, but it's a depot, so individuals can have that on a weekly or monthly basis, which really frees them up from some of the sort of daily rigours of having to take a medication. And again, that won't be for everybody, but it's certainly having some positive results with a significant number of people where it's been used. A little bit like the long-acting injectable antipsychotics seem to be very useful for certain patients, you know, to Absolutely. For, um, having it sort of a month on board at a time kind of makes sense for some people. But as we were saying, there are some people that all of that, you know, medicine choice, they fail to benefit from, does not work for them. And what we know is that in those circumstances, if we use diamorphine, then this can have the same stabilizing effect and liberating effect that the frontline medication failed to do and it's important that we have access to that because if you can't get the right medicine then effectively you are locked into a cycle of problematic chaotic drug use where you are having to you know the the sort of classic picture of having to commit crimes or borrow lots of money to to fund your drug habit continue to engage with you know drug dealers and organized crime gangs to acquire your substances Often that means that you are in and out of prison, you are in and out of treatment because it's not as effective as it could be, you're in and out of hospital, so you have a, it has a massive impact on the individual, but it also has a massive impact on our communities with that sort of disruption and our services because we've got this group of people who are effectively bouncing around the criminal justice system, bouncing around the health system, not being managed particularly well, not doing very well and causing you know, a great deal of sort of distress, but also costing quite a lot to the public purse. And very vulnerable. Extremely vulnerable. Yeah. You know, they're vulnerable in, in, in many ways. Their health is vulnerable, um, their exploitation, and their mental health is not improving. So, you know, their, their vulnerability um, is tenfold, really, by, by no fault of their own. They've, they're looking for support, they're looking for treatment, and they, they, it isn't there, the medicine that they require isn't there for them in... In abundance right now. So what what we did with diamorphine is, you know, we're not the first to do this. This is has been part of the sort of British. It's called the old British system, really. So back in the day, sort of 50s, 60s, we had a significant prescribing of of heroin, which is you know what diamorphine effectively is, to people who required it, and we moved away from that system partly due to pressure from the Americans and the sort of war on drugs. It was felt that this wasn't an appropriate treatment option. But it gained traction again in particularly Switzerland in the 80s, 90s, where they had a huge epidemic of public injecting. And they they undertook sort of two sort of key interventions, really, drug consumption rooms, but also the delivery of uh, heroin-assisted treatment, as it was called at that point. 
And that is where an individual attends a particular clinic. They are prescribed heroin and dimorphine, which they self-administer under observation of a biomedical team. And the results were profound. We, they saw you know, dramatic improvement in people's health, a dramatic improvement in people's social functioning, but also a dramatic reduction in crime in the communities where this type of intervention was available. We looked at this in, in the UK as a country with the riot trials. So these were undertaken in the early 2000s. I think it was Brighton, London and Darlington in the northeast that the trials were undertaken. Again, similar results were recorded that we saw improvement in health, improvement in social functioning and reduction in crime. And that was measured primarily through the cessation of heroin use. So that was you know, the research outcome for those trials was that if you provided dimorphine to individuals under these conditions, they would break their relationship with um, street heroin and have all of these positive consequences. They continued that those interventions for, I think it was probably another 12 months post-trial. So, and due to the sort of funding constraints, I believe the, the sort of economics of the time that the, these programs were, were terminated, sadly. And it wasn't until 2017 where I started to look at this again in, in the Middlesbrough area. We were exploring ways that we could improve the treatment offer to people who use heroin in, in the town, which at the time and sadly continues to have the highest or one of the highest drug-related death rates in England. Um, it is one of the areas with the highest proportion of social deprivation, areas, wards of social deprivation. And I think the deprived ward in, in England is, is contained within the town. And we had a group of people who were accessing treatment who were, you know, failing to benefit. And they were actually poorly. They were young. So, you know, the average age of the treatment population was sort of early 40. So given that that's about my age, I'm going to say that's young. Yeah, <laughs> very young where I'm coming from. <laughs> <laughs> but they had a staggering increased prevalence of chronic health conditions. So they were twice as likely to have respiratory problems, over twice as likely to have COPD, and have that diagnosed at an early age. You know, the, the age of onset for COPD is usually 67. To have it at, you know, early 40s is debilitating. They were twice as likely to have mental health problems. They were 50% more likely to be suffering from strokes, you know, other, other conditions. They were twice as likely to need palliative care. So we were really talking about a group of individuals who were presenting to us with the illness of old age, escaping the traumas of their childhood. And we were not able to address their needs wholly with the medicines that we had available. And that's where we started to look at introducing DAT. So we, over a sort of two, three year period of working with clinics, you know, across the, the globe really, and learning from their experiences and going through the process of finding the funding and getting the appropriate licenses in place, we were able to start providing um, dimorphine-assisted treatment in 2019. Um, for It was initially for 20 individuals. We got funding initially for one year via the Police and Crime Commissioner locally. And this was around the time that the pandemic set off. So I think we got three months into the programme and then COVID hit. So 
we managed somehow, I still don't quite know, we still managed to deliver that intervention throughout the whole pandemic. Wow. With That's a, impressive. A, a phenomenal effort from the staff team and, and the patient group who really had to deal with some, you know, quite difficult circumstances to make sure we got the infection control right and kept them all safe and, and the staff team right. But the upshot of that intervention is that we saw, as we've seen in the evidence elsewhere, we saw a dramatic shift in individuals. So Teesside University undertook a study for year one, and they uh, reported that we had individuals, so 60% reduction in crime. So, you know, that was a a significant shift in criminal behaviour. But also we found in terms of crime, there was a reduction in the severity of crime. So when people were committing crime, it was nowhere near as, as severe as, as historically and often triggered by other social needs. So if people had been struggling for food, it wasn't necessarily driven by the need for acquisition of drugs anymore. We found that 80% of individuals on, on the program, all of all the drugs tested drug testing that we undertook were were negative for street heroin so it was only intermittently people were lapsing and using street heroin and that led them as individuals to report that their physical health had improved sort of we measured it using a treatment outcome profile scale which is a, a scale that's used across england to measure outcomes in drug treatment they reported their physical health had improved by 100% their mental well-being had improved by 218% and their quality of life had improved by 261% so staggering staggering changes with individuals you know reporting their a complete shift in how they perceive their own well-being and their own relationship with themselves and and other people and it, it was you know profound outcomes really Staggering, as you say. Incredible, incredible impact. And like that emphasis on the quality of life to really empower people, how they, what they want to achieve from their treatment, I think is really, really important. So incredible effects seen. And as you said, cost effective, really, in terms of crime. Absolutely. So we know that we, we saved against the public purse in terms of criminal justice. We saved against the public purse in terms of health. So individuals in that group were chaotically accessing services or accessing, so I don't like that word, accessing in crisis. So they would present at A&E extremely unwell or with severe abscesses. They would present for mental health services with, you know, suicidal ideation, or they would be in and out of the prison system and you know and so on and so forth what we saw in terms of health is that people move from that reactive access to proactive access so they started planning appointments they started addressing the health needs and that of course meant that they were physically better but also from a sort of health economic point of view this reduced the cost significantly because it's emergency access to care that is the most expensive so, you know, we know that we had that, that saving to the, to the public purse. The challenge was, was being able to unlock that saving. So we were funded through initially the Police and Crime Commissioner and that funding was terminated with change of Police and Crime Commissioner and picked up temporarily through Project Adder. We weren't able to continue with the programme because we weren't able to realise the 
we were saving to put back into the programme. And sadly, the programme terminated in December 22, with all the individuals having to return to another form of treatment, sadly. Tragic. So, I mean, the results are absolutely, as you say, staggering. This is a complete game changer for people, for health and, you know, for public spending, you know, so many benefits. So what is the resistance to having this all over the country for people? Yeah, I think it's a really good question and one that I can only try and navigate the answer because for me it's it's a no-brainer that this should be everywhere and you know certainly that's what I advocate for. But I think it's probably to do with it is a more costly intervention so it's an intervention whereby people are coming to a service twice a day, seven days a week, rain or shine. So there is there are staffing implications to that. And that obviously, you know, has has cost implications. So it's seen as a as a costly intervention, or perceived to be. And secondly, it's a or certainly the numbers that we got were fairly low. And that's because of the parameters of the funding. So I think it's seen as a sort of a low yield from a public sort of health point of view that you don't hit a huge number of people. But I think I challenge both of those premises in, well, we've shown again, and all the worldwide evidence has shown is, you know, yes, it's costly, but yes, it's cost, it's cost effective. So what you put in, you do save elsewhere within, within our society. And secondly, that the target population is those that treatment has failed for. So they are causing you know significant amount of cost to the public purse so if you target individuals where the ripple effect is significant as we did then actually you may have low numbers but you have a high yield of impact from the low numbers you know for example we know that a very small it's a very small proportion of the of the public that actually cause problems from a, a drug point of view and this is the group that we're you know, they consume the most drugs out of our communities. And if you can target those and allow those to those guys to stabilize and have that opportunity to stabilize, then you do get those you do get those benefits. So I think it's I agree with you, it's a no brainer, but others do sort of go down the road of, well, we could we could provide another intervention which would impact two hundred people. But again, I, I go back to the fact that you're not impacting that group of people that are causing the most harms to themselves and harm to the communities that they live in. And the drug-related deaths in this country are at an all-time high. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're, Scotland are sadly leading the way in Europe, but, you know, in England, we exactly the same. We're, we're struggling to get a, a grip of drug-related deaths. And, and that's, you know, due to the decades of underinvestment. And probably if I'm, if I'm, if I'm honest, from a, a harm reduction point of view, I do think that the sort of shift to an abstinence-based sort of recovery-focused treatment system and ideology has played its part. People who use drugs over the last decade have been kind of repeatedly told they need to recover, that using drugs is not okay. And, that, you know, from a, a stats point of view, if you're a treatment provider, 
you're not deemed to have kind of done your job unless you've got people successfully out of treatment and to do that they have to be no longer using um substances so there is some real real issue for me with the the sort of abstinence-based approach for me recovery needs to be what it is to that individual you know why isn't it that one of the guys who's on dimorphine assisted treatment who is no longer street homeless is now reconnected with his family is volunteering a little bit but needs a medicine why is that he feels recovered why is that not counted so i know there are some changes to metrics in england which will start to capture some of that a bit better but in essence we've almost lost our way with with harm reduction with a focus on actually the best way to use harm is for people to just not use drugs and that's unrealistic i think we should be talking in terms of stability um rather than recovery and that can be abstinence or it can be somewhere else along that continuum Joel always struck me as uh, denying somebody who has diabetes their insulin that's what they need to be well yeah absolutely you know that's what you need and you need to be well and functioning and you know leading a good life and it just seems fairly yeah i completely agree and i think even the word recovery sort of raises stuff really because if we think about for many people with a problematic uh, relationship with substances they may well have had really difficult starts to life and how can you recover what you've never had so what you're trying to recover so it may well be that this is a different journey it's about living life in a more stable way rather than trying to recover what i was before drugs damaged me and you know that's not necessarily how people's relationship with drugs are and it's a little bit like the alcohol alcoholics anonymous you know abstinence goal and that's just not doesn't work for so many people and it, you know and the psychedelics trials with alcohol are really interesting i think because they they reduce the levels of drinking to below, you know, to not the harmful levels, just kind of below harmful levels. And that seems to me a really, really good goal for many, many people to be able to control your drinking, to, to use drugs safely and to, to manage your life instead of having the drug controlling everything and, you know, the way our system is now. So are there any countries, places in the world where DAT is, you know, is available yeah, there are a number. I mean, Swiss, the Swiss really are the sort of forebears of the way DAT is now, where you go to a centre and you know use um, under supervision. But there are examples uh, across Europe, so Germany, Norway, Luxembourg. Um, within North America, there are clinics within Canada in Vancouver, which are, are very successful. They also have rolled out the use of a of hydro morphone which is another opiate uh, similar to diamorphine and that's quite widespread in terms of its availability as they attempt to address their overdose you know crisis with synthetic opioids so yes it is it's it's reasonably well widespread and and as i say everywhere it's provided it's it provides those exact same outcomes so that you know it's always an improvement in social functioning and a reduction in in crime which you know we all win when people are stabilized in a treatment that's effective for them so is there any hope of britain looking to these countries and learning and learning from the the results from your your work do you think i mean i'd like to think so i mean there are all i'm always having conversations and always working 
with other commissioners and providers to broaden the access of dimorphine-assisted treatment. It isn't a matter of evidence anymore. You know, we, we've got to move that. It's a matter of, right, what are, the, what are your local needs? Are there a group of people who are failing to benefit? And there always are, because medicine doesn't reach everybody. Then this needs to be introduced to support the needs of that population. And, you know, the work I'm doing with Cranston as an organisation, we are really pushing that this is available in all areas of the UK and you know we're willing to work with anybody to make sure that that happens it's a it's a key driver both personally and for the organization so I do want to see that that happen. And do you think Scotland could implement this? So Scotland of course have a dimorphin assisted program so I should have mentioned earlier on they they have a program in Glasgow, which has been operating for a similar time frame to the Middlesbrough one, but has continued. They have different funding pathways. So I think there's a lot more security there. And the Scottish government have, have really sort of laid down that they want to see heroin-assisted treatment available across the whole, the whole country. But that's been slow on the uptake, so they've still only got the one provision at the moment. And again, we're working closely with Scottish government and with local area boards to support them to introduce you know the service as widespread as it needs to be but there is a desire and an appetite for that to happen um i think some of that is is stuck in politics really but you know there's there is that appetite for for it to be there but it's what is interesting is that although the appetite's there is we aren't seeing it grow yeah, on that exactly vision at the moment and that that's frustrating it's really frustrating and it's quite incredible actually because all the evidence, as you yeah. say, we don't need more evidence. The evidence is there. It speaks to itself, for itself. And it does, and I'm not saying this for the, the Scottish situation, but I do wonder about, there's something moralistic that people seem to get involved in when it comes to dimorphine-assisted treatment. You know, part of the reason that we moved away from the word heroin and to dimorphine was that it had connotations with the public and with commissioners other sort of stakeholders that this was about giving free drugs to people and it absolutely wasn't it was a, an intense sort of treatment program and dimorphine is a medicine and it was a medicine that people required so we we kind of medicalized it a little bit in order to sort of move away from some of that some of the stigma that came with the way that we called the program it's funny, but I mean, it's weird because they don't have the same problem with methadone or nicotine patches or, you know. Mm. And the analogy of it just being a second or alternative form of treatment, I think really helps. And that kind of helps push away the stigma or at least attempts to. And Danny, I'm just wondering from your experience working in your different um, services, how have you seen the trends in drug use change over the years, specifically with the kind of increase in um, street benzos? Yeah, it's changed exponentially, really, from when I started. So if I think back to that student placement all those years ago, people were users of single drugs. So people were coming in and they used exclusively heroin. They didn't use any substances at all at that point. And what's happened over the years is that people have moved to a position of polydrug use. And that's been, you know, the sort of First of all, crack cocaine kind of came into the picture. So I'm talking about this problematic group that end up um, seeking support. And then what we've seen over time is is the rise of, of street tablets, and they can be in various guises, primarily benzodiazepines. Interestingly, in 
certainly in the Middlesbrough area, there's a, a sort of a liking for Zopiclone, and that's a drug that is is used quite prominently on as a street tablet. But also the gabapentinoids and the use of those have grown you know, exponentially, really. And some of it we've got to blame ourselves for. So if I look back as part of part of my career, there was a period of time where benzodiazepines were more freely available through prescription. And there was a real drive um, through the primary care community to, to remove people from those prescriptions and to limit prescribing going forward. And if you fast forward, that's probably about a decade ago, if you fast forward 10 years the use of street benzos is is greater than ever and the risks associated are greater than ever because where there is a need or a, a demand there will be a supply and happen from a position of you know relatively safe supply to one where the risks to the end user are greatly increased by firstly the potency of the street tablet and the unpredictability so some tablets you know, there's no quality control you, you buy one tablet it's got very little active ingredient, whereas the next tablet would have, you know, three times the amount of active ingredients. So, and people tend to take them in in quite large volume. So they'll take ten at once, and if you've got a, you know a particularly strong batch, then that's going to you know you just can't predict the effect that you're going to have. So again, if you think from a harm reduction point of view, you know some of the advice is about starting slowly, understanding you know what start low and start slow basically understand the effects of the drugs that you've got in your possession rather than you know taking them all at once and then being unable to control the effect and that you know creates the risks that go with it and how do you care for them in the clinic and on the dat program how did you manage that so within the 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 dat program what we found with concurrent drug use is that it stabilized or it stopped so although the you know the medicine targets heroin is you know and that was the the primary outcome we saw people break their relationship with cocaine and street tablets as well in general there were some individuals who struggled to do that and they over time struggled with the program if i'm honest so if people were continuing to take unpredictable sedating tablets then as we were trying to administer dimorphine that was starting to be a problem in terms of overdose risk and being able to support them so in some cases, we'd prescribe to make sure that they had a safe supply and we could manage that supply for them. In other cases, that wasn't always possible, but we'd, we'd, we'd work with individuals to try and you know get that picture of stability. But sadly, we had some cases, because you know that isn't a panacea either, where people's concurrent use of street tablets meant that they were turning up for dosing already heavily sedated, and we weren't able to continue to sort of provide dimorphine because it was becoming... You know, it would be a risk to them rather than a, a help to them in that in that moment and, and situation. But it is a nuance. It is a difficulty of current treatment provision is what do we do about street tablets? You know, it's, the clinical guidelines are fairly clear that we should avoid long-term prescriptions. If we are to prescribe, they should be on a tapered amount. And the evidence base as it exists right now is that it's not very beneficial to prescribe. So that puts a clinician in a difficult position because there are a number of people who present who you think actually being able to stabilize and provide a safe supply of this substance, this tablet, is likely to be potentially effective. But I'm working completely outside of, of potential guidelines. So we really 
like to see an increase in the evidence base and some work, some research done around long-term prescription of, of certain, you know, benzos, for example, in the same way that we've got that kind of level of research for methadone and, and what are the potential uh, long-term benefits. And that will allow us as clinicians to, to be able to explore and support people more readily from a, you know, a safe supply perspective. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's great that we have service centres that can track drug trends and put warnings out there as well. I think that's a really valuable tool that people often forget about as well. And thinking now about women, you know, are there any specific issues for women who use drugs that you've come across in your services and um, specific approaches um, that are used? Yes. So, I mean, I think it's a really interesting topic and, and one that actually I'm kind of grappling with all the time from a, a harm reduction point of view and a safeguarding point of view. So I think there are a number of women who fear coming into treatment. They worry about coming into treatment because they worry that they, they will lose their children and that prevents them from connecting with us as a helping force. And I think what we've got into is a, is a kind of rhetoric and a stigma really that you know parents who use drugs can't be good parents and that is absolutely not the truth that with the right parameters and safety measures in place people can use drugs and be good parents and i think that is a narrative that we need to push forward in terms of allowing confidence for people who are parenting mums who who may be struggling with their their use want to stabilize it a bit being able to access treatment without fear of losing their children so i think we've got work to do and we are improving you know we we, we do have sort of there are women only services there are women only clinics there are ways and means of encouraging that engagement but i do think we do need to address the sort of elephant in the room in that the group People who worry that coming to see us means my children with, uh, will be removed. And there's a group of people here who are saying, you know, we want to help and support you. And there is a very real risk. Let's be honest, if as a professional, I'm concerned about some safeguarding issues because of the way somebody is managing their substance use, then I've got a professional responsibility to safeguard that child. And I've got to find a way, I think, of getting that balance right so that we can um, safeguard children who, who who require it, but also that women who use drugs have the confidence to come to treatment and that safeguarding doesn't ultimately mean, you know, that your children will be removed. And, and, and the starting point for me has to be that parents or mums who use drugs can be good parents and we need to be very, very, not just can be, are good parents and can, and we need to be really vocal about that message. And maybe that message needs to start training at universities with mental health nurses, social workers, anyone involved in that that service. Absolutely. And, you know, if I think about some of the interrelational, interprofessional relationships and some of the challenges that, that, that it brings is that we can often have situations whereby if a family are in safeguarding and a, pa- a parent is on OST, let's say methadone, you know, we've talked about that underdosing scenario already. We'll have people on a good therapeutic dose of methadone and the social workers care plan will be reduce your methadone and that that's seen as a positive in terms of safeguarding, whereas actually for me, that's not a positive. That is a destabilizing factor. And there has got to be that constant education that reduction doesn't mean good 
coming off doesn't mean good. Actually, stability is surely what we're all looking for. That's what I want in my family is this, you know, you want a good secure, it's a good secure base to grow up in, not one that is, is fluctuating. And so, you know, we've got to make sure that those messages around what stability is and what dosing is are clear so that actually as professionals, we don't make things worse for people who are using drugs by, in, it may be good intending, but by misinformation and, and applying our needs you know, it goes back to that stuff of the assumption is that the only way this person is going to be well is by not using drugs anymore. And that simply may not be the case for that person. Completely. So just sort of on the street drugs topic, I see there is a bit of an, some synthetic opioids flooding the market now. And we are having a bit of an opioid crisis of our own. Would that, is that the case? Yes, it certainly is. So sadly, I suppose there's some predisposing factors really. So we have learned in the last few months that there's been a kind of Taliban edict that there is a reduction in the cultivation of um, opium. So most of the opium in Europe and certainly within the UK comes from Afghanistan. So we think that there is an 18 month sort of stock and then we're going to seeing significant reductions in the availability of, of heroin. What that's led to or what we predicted would this would lead to is a potential contamination of the existing stock to make it last longer or to completely move people from heroin onto a synthetic opioid. And that's what we seem to see starting in pockets within the UK right now or within England. We've had a number of cases within the West Midlands, a number of cases within the Bristol area. So random pockets of cases, these have led to deaths and some significant poisonings have been very unwell. And I do think that this is the beginning potentially of a significant worsening of what has been a very stable um, supply chain of, of heroin. You know, people the sort of general public will assume that the supply chain being uh, disrupted and there being less heroin available is a good thing. But what we realise is that means the demand is there and the supply will be there. And as we talked about with the benzos earlier, um, that means that people will fill that demand. So right now we're seeing nitazines, which are a synthetic opioid, far more potent, entering the market where these overdoses, spikes have occurred and deaths, sadly, what we're sort of pushing and advising to people to do from a harm reduction point of view is if you're not in treatment, get yourself in treatment because we know that if you are on a opiate substitute that that does have evidence-based protective factors so it will reduce your risks. Um, get naloxone and carry naloxone. Lots of people now have naloxone but don't always keep it on the person so it's key that people have it on them. So naloxone is a, a medication that temporarily reverses the effects of opioids. It kicks the opioid out of the receptor site and you know people say it brings people back from the dead. What it does is it means it, it temporarily means that the overdose is, is reversed. But it is a temporary solution. So the overdose can reoccur sort of 20 minutes later when the naloxone wears off. But naloxone is readily available through 
all drug services. Some services will send it out in the post. They'll give it to anybody who asks for a kit, really, certainly within our services. So if you are a person who uses drugs or know somebody who uses drugs, then contact your local service and they will show you how to use that kit safely. But yeah, that's key. We know that with naloxone and some of these synthetic opioids, you may need to use more naloxone than normal and the reaction may be different. So people would normally become quite alert if they'd used overdose with heroin, whereas with nitazines, they may well stay quite sedated, but their breathing pattern will return, which is you know important. And in all of these cases, we need to be calling for help and then we're really excitingly and probably really well timed is the 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 buddy up app so this is an app that's free to download free for people to use and it effectively is your buddy if you use drugs alone you can get it on your phone and you are in contact with somebody while you're using alone if you are become unresponsive then your pre-planned emergency plan is initiated and help is called so that has just been launched and as i say it's available on all sort of download platforms i don't know what they call them phones and it's going to be a really useful tool in terms of supporting people who are using alone and that's one of the biggest risks is that often people due to their circumstances or again due to the stigma of their drug use make a decision to use on their own and that means if they get into you know distress, there is no nobody knows and they die. So buddy up could be a really useful. I think it will be a really useful armory in our harm reduction um, tool bag. Sounds brilliant. And I guess it won't cost anything. It's available for you. Costs absolutely nothing. It costs absolutely nothing for the individual using the service or you know for for services to roll this this out and advertise it within there across the UK. Whether that's a Cranston service or not is irrelevant. This is about saving lives. So we've made that available across the the four countries. Brilliant. It's a really smart intervention. And but badly needed. This is terrifying about the Taliban and the supply of, you know, heroin and then these synthetic, nasty, nasty compounds coming on the market. Of course, fentanyl is another so potent. It's really, really terrifying. So more need for more need for that than ever. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what we've what we're really shouting for is that these, you know, we can address nitazines with what we've got now, but actually what we need is safe safer drug supply, which would include DAT for people who need it, but also overdose prevention sites and widespread drug checking so that, you know, we need to move away from oh, it doesn't feel very English to be doing these things to actually we just need to save lives and let's get on and do it. Uh, these are absolutely vital in countries where they are experiencing synthetic opioids this is these are the interventions that are helping keep people alive and we've got to learn from that not make the same uh, mistakes and wait too long yeah we just cannot do that danny we're nearly out of time actually it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast absolutely brilliant it really has. Thank you. No, thank you. I've absolutely loved it. And I could sit here and talk for hours, but I know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> listen for hours, couldn't we? <laughs> oh, definitely. But that Joe and I do have one more question, don't we, Joe? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, you're an occasional DJ. Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> According to your Twitter bio, <laughs> what, what's your genre? 
Okay, so yeah, this goes back to my rave days. So uh, house <laughs> music is my thing. But as I've got a bit older, what I started to do as part of my sort of musical education really was was to realise that a lot of the samples that we use in the music that I like were original underground disco samples. So I actually play a crossover of the two. I play a lot of sort of funky disco-y house and original underground disco tracks so yeah dirty disco is like a like to call <laughs> dirty it. it's, disco. It's, I love that. <laughs> that's my kind of that's my groove <laughs> that's great well the reason hannah asked that question is because she's she loves festivals and she's much more of a current <laughs> although i have to say my husband's in a in a prog rock band <laughs> so there's oh, a lot cool. of that oh, there's a lot of music in our house a lot of quite weird stuff but I have to say, <laughs> not a lot of house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll send you a mixtape and you can add it to your... Oh, do! Do you know, Danny, he would l- absolutely love that. He loves all kinds of music. There you go. Brilliant. And let us know maybe if you're playing anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Cranston are looking at doing their conference next year and I think it's muted that I might I might step Ooh. out and play the director. Oh, the line no. up. <laughs> so, you never know. We'll be there, won't we, Hannah? Brilliant. Front left. And one last thing. How are Leeds United doing? Or should I not ah, ask? Yeah. Ah. Well, so since we last spoke, uh, they got relegated. Um, not good. But over the summer, they've changed manager to someone who I'm pleased with, Daniel Farker. Uh, they've changed owners to a bit more stable owners, hopefully. And we've just played the first game in the championship, so the sort of old Division 2, and we got a point, we drew. So we actually, you know, we kept all of the football, we scored some goals and we passed it a bit. So things are maybe looking up. But you know, being a Leeds United fan, you're never going to be happy. It's a cursed club. Cursed to make you miserable for the day. All your days, really, which is why I indoctrinated <laughs> my son and daughter so I don't have to suffer alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, things are looking up, I think, for Leeds by the sound of it. Yeah, well, let's hope so. Well, thank you very much indeed, Danny. Good stuff. It's a pleasure. Oh, thank you again.